Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to City Beautiful Church. Uh, it's so good to have you with us today. We're continuing on in our series called Charismata, where we're exploring the spiritual gifts that God has equipped each one of us with um, in order to love the world back into uh, his presence. And today I get to teach about one of the gifts that I have, which is the gift of uh, teaching. So uh, I want to tell a little bit of story. I want to kind of give you some framework for where I'm headed in this, uh, and then I want to dive into specifically what is the what is the offering of teachers within the community um, so there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful little anecdote uh, that was uh, made famous by David Foster Wallace years ago in uh, a little book he called This is Water. And it goes like this. Um, there's these two young fish, and they're swimming along, uh, just minding their own business, and this older fish swims by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they move on and one fish turns to the other and says, what the heck is water? And it's a really great little story to speak about something that I think is really important for us. Now, today, again, I think maybe because we're doing the spiritual gift of teaching, I'm gonna get really wonky in some things here, but I think if we can get this, uh, this is really important. I think what this little story does is it speaks to us about something called social imaginary. Now, what is a social imaginary? Social imaginary is how we believe the world to be based on the stories we tell ourselves to reinforce our frames. So it's a little bit different than a worldview. A worldview is essentially any kind of ism. It might be a religious orientation or a political orientation or you know, whatever it might be. There's a, a philosophical underpinning to how we see the world. Uh, but it tends to be a little bit more formal and academic. A social imaginary kind of goes above and beyond that and becomes more about um, how a worldview makes us feel through story, through image that reinforces this understanding of ourself and how we connect to other people. Um, and then the social imaginary gives us these frames uh, that we adopt that become kind of the basis of how we uh, interpret the reality around us. And frames, they're a lot like the frames on your, if, if you wear glasses, it's, you, you spend very little time aware of the frames on your face, but you're constantly peering at the world through those frames. And what is so powerful about a social imaginary, because it's so comprehensive to our understanding of reality, is that when we're presented with facts that don't already fit the frames that we have on our face, they just kind of bounce off of us. And this is why so many of you are so frustrated when it comes to social media engagement, because you're trying, some of you anyway, are trying to have conversations with people, and you're presenting facts, and you're being so logical and methodical, and you feel like you're not getting anywhere in these kinds of engagements, because we like to think as human beings we're rational creatures, um, but the reality is that we're not. We're story-based creatures. We live according to symbol and image and myth and legend that tell us something about who we are and how the world works. Now, why, do you, why is it important to start a, a sermon about the spiritual gift of teaching by talking about social imaginary? One of the things that I've been so enamored with recently as, as people have asked me, what is it, 
actually mean to be saved? If it's more than just we get to go to heaven when we die, which is kind of the base level understanding of the gospel that a lot of people um, have lived into, what does it actually mean? What are we being saved from? And what are we being saved to? And how can salvation be a present and ongoing reality in our lives? Well, I think part of the salvation that we find in Jesus is being delivered from social imaginaries that don't line up with God's reality in the way that God sees us, in the way that God is calling us to relate to one another and what it means to be a human being, in the way that God has designed the world. And, and Jesus saves us from these social imaginaries in our surrounding culture and gifts us with a new social imaginary, a new way to see God, to see ourselves, and to see the world. And I think that is where the teachers among us have their greatest contribution. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to look at a story from Jesus that I think uh, so beautifully um, envelops the gift of teacher. Um, Father, thank you for this time. And, and God, I especially uh, want to thank you for uh, the gift that you've given me in teaching um, and the, the joy that it is to get to use this gift so regularly in service of your kingdom. God, I pray for um, the teachers in our community, those that you've called to be kind of on the forefront of uh, telling your story in a way that it um, rescues us and redeems us from the stories of the surrounding culture. I pray that each one of us would enter in today um, with open hearts um, to receive your love, open minds to receive your truth, open hands that we freely give to you any kind of worldview or social imaginary that falls short of your kingdom and that we would gather up every part of who we are behind you and your story because it's the only story that can actually save the world. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, if you remember at the beginning of the year, we did this series called Original Jesus, where we were, you know, in this whole year, we're talking about maturity. And we said, well, if we're going to look at what it means to be fully human in God's way, well, we need to look at Jesus as the full and complete human being as the template for who we're all becoming. And we actually didn't get to touch on this story in Luke chapter four in that Original Jesus series, uh, which is a shame because it's one of my favorite stories. This is um, according to Luke's telling of Jesus's life. This is the first time that Jesus gets up to teach in church. And so we're going to be looking at Luke 4, uh, beginning in verse 14, all the way through to verse 30. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that quote there is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and then Isaiah 58, verse 6. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. 
Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me down here in your hometown what we have heard that you did, or sorry, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the building, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So for all of you that are interested in becoming teachers, I think this is a really great place to start. And the, the kind of lesson that we can learn here as a teacher is if your sermons don't get you thrown off the cliff, you may not be doing it right. Uh, of course, uh, that is a joke. I have yet to be thrown off a cliff, uh, at least literally. Maybe, maybe I have been thrown off a few cliffs uh, verbally. Um, but this is a really interesting story, and we wonder why the crowd would react the way that they do. And so what we find is Jesus going around teaching. Everybody loves him. He, he just really seems to have a deep connection with the Father, and he can do all this amazing stuff with Scripture. And it comes his time in this specific synagogue. He stands up, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61, about what the Spirit of the Lord is going to do in anointing the, uh, and being anointed to proclaim the good news, to proclaim freedom from the prisoners, recovery of sight from the blind. And the next verse in Isaiah 61 says, and the, take, declare the vengeance of the Lord. But Jesus doesn't read that line. Instead, he jumps back to chapter 58, verse 6, and takes the, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so at first, um, these Jews don't understand what Jesus is doing. They're rather amazed that he's saying, this has all been fulfilled in your hearing. And as they're kind of fawning over the things that he's saying, he very directly reminds them of these two moments in the Old Testament story. First, in Elijah's time, that of all the widows that there were in, among the Israelites, um, God chose to do a, a miracle for a Gentile woman. And of all the people that had a leprosy in the time of Elisha, the only person that was miraculously healed was a Syrian, another kind of Gentile. And Jesus is doing something very subversive here with the scriptures. He's reading the scriptures, but in the scriptures, he's unveiling the heart of God, where the Jews were used to reading their, their scriptures, used to reading what we call the Old Testament, and seeing how God kind of uh, props up the Jewish people and is going to take vengeance upon the Gentiles. Jesus is reinterpreting the scriptures to show them God's true heart was now to welcome in the Gentiles to the people of God. And that's what almost gets him thrown off the cliff is that the people didn't like that vision of the Bible. They didn't like those, that vision of the scriptures because the scriptures kind of reinforced to them this social imaginary that they had that we are God's chosen people and therefore we're the best and God's gonna take care of all of our enemies and there's no place for them in his plans and he's gonna prop us up to be top dog. But the way in which Jesus does scripture, the way in which Jesus teaches is to say, actually, here's the heart of the father right in the middle of the story. Will you accept that or not? 
And so Jesus bursts open the social imaginary that the Jews had about God's perspective of other people groups. So I think this is a great way for us to understand the spiritual gift of teaching. That first of all, teachers immerse us in God's story so that we can interpret our lives in light of his truth and love. So we've been kind of following that five-fold ministry through the beginning of this series uh, and looking at how, how God is establishing something through that five-fold so that everybody else can flourish in the community. Um, the first thing that we looked at was the apostle, the kind of future-oriented visionary person who sees potential kind of a spiritual entrepreneur to go into new territory and to establish what God plans to do there. Second, um, we looked at the prophet, who is more of a present-oriented person, who's kind of in that space saying, okay, Lord, what are you saying and doing right now, and how do we establish in this culture, in this new territory that the apostle has led us into, um, a, a heavenly culture? Um, and we looked at the evangelist, the kind of, again, a, a present-oriented person, but who looks outside the surrounding culture and says, how do I convey the good news of Jesus in a way that it brings people into living encounter with him and transforms their lives? And now we look at the teacher, so apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher. That teachers tend to be a little bit more past-oriented people, that they're always thinking about the present moment in terms of where we've been and how we've gotten to this moment. And the beauty of the teacher is that they balance out the gifts that we've already looked at in apostle and prophet and evangelist because it grounds those people in what has been historically true of God and his people up to this point using scripture. Teachers, um, scripture is their closest ally. And, you know, I talked about with apostles, for example, they can be so future-oriented and so assertive and going into the new territories that it's very easy for them to become uh, untethered from the, tr the great tradition of the church and from the fuller story of God, that prophets can sometimes find themselves, because they're so convicted by what God is saying in the moment, kind of disconnecting from people and, and, and feeling like they're loners, um, that uh, evangelists can be so desperate to see people saved that they maybe forget about the art of discipleship. And teachers kind of present scripture to the rest of the community to give this common grounding of the story of God so that we find ourselves in uh, this legacy. Um, and I think that this is such an important uh, reorientation of, of teacher and scripture that we, we are to be immersed in God's story so that the story interprets who we are. You see, sometimes we are in this mistaken uh, understanding that our role is to interpret scripture rather than it being scripture's role to interpret us. And why do I say that? I think because sometimes we interpret scripture out of our social imaginary. We already, we already have these stories that we've grown up with, this water that we're swimming in that we don't even realize that we're swimming in, and we use uh, those social imaginaries, those frames on our, on our eyes to read scripture, to justify what we already believe to be true about who we are and who God is and how the world works. And those social imaginaries can be um, political. Those social imaginaries can be um, nationalistic. Um, there's all sorts of different ways that we come to the scriptures looking to try to interpret the scriptures based on what we already believe. 
And the problem with that is then we make scripture say whatever we want it to say, which is very easy to do, by the way. I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's pretty big. There's a lot of stuff in there, and you can find just about one verse to justify any position that you want to take that reinforces your social imaginary. But the problem is when we try to interpret scripture out of what we already believe, we start to make scripture say what we want it to say. And before long, we fashion a God that's in our image rather than us being fashioned in his. And I think good teachers understand the difference there, that our job is not to interpret the scriptures to support our beliefs, but our job is to be immersed in the scriptures, immersed in the story of God, that it begins to inform and then transform us. I remember years ago, first hearing somebody really open up the story of the prodigal son that's in Luke, this beautiful story that we've used as kind of this foundational truth for our uh, church community. And the, the beauty of the way that this person did the prodigal son was not just to make some theologically interesting points, but to actually invite us to see ourselves in the place of the son that walks away from the house, to see ourselves in the, uh, the place of the son that stays home and is resentful, but then eventually even to see ourselves in the place of the father, if that's who we are to become. And it was this kind of teaching that anointed my imagination and opened up the story to become this new way of seeing God, of seeing myself, of seeing the world that I hadn't previously seen it. Because I believe in that story we find, you know, kind of as we've established these three primary theological values that we have as a community. First of all, intimacy with Father God. Um, Secondly, inhabiting our identity um, in Christ and being in his image and being transformed to look more like him. And then in our purpose as the spirit-led church that wherever we go, we go as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven and we um, we see people one back into relationship with him. And so teachers tether us to God's reality so that it awaken us to what it means to be human in his world. All right, I'm about to get really wonky again. So if this is the point where you just need to go get a coffee refill or whatever, do it, that's fine. Um, I'm just kidding, you really need to understand this. This is incredibly important, but it's very, it feels very abstract. We live in a world today where the underlying assumption in most social imaginaries is that the world is inherently a neutral space that's waiting to be defined. And human beings are inherently just full of potential, but waiting to be defined. Um, If you want to get really uh, down the path of philosophy, you find this kind of in in dualism and then uh, in Epicureanism, which in uh, in Greek philosophy is this idea that, yeah, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't, but um, he kind of lives way off in the distance and he's not particularly bothered about what's going on here. So our job as human beings is to define ourselves, to self-actualize, to determine how we're going to run society. And maybe every once in a while, God will show up and make a cameo. And that is actually a fundamental belief in the world today, including within the Christian household. Many of us still believe that's how the world works. 
And so, especially in our country, in the United States of America, we talk about the right to self-determination and self-actualization because we believe that we don't have any inherent identity except for the ones that we've chosen for ourselves, which is ironic because that in and of itself is a story that we've been told. We've been told this story that you don't have a story except for the story that you decide that you want to live out. And that's your right as a human being, and especially that's your right as an American. And that's where we get into so many problems in this country when we're arguing about our freedoms and our rights because we feel like any time that there's definition put on us, somehow we are less free than we were before. But God's story gives us a radically different understanding of freedom. It gives us a radically different understanding of human identity. Because we recognize in the Christian household, and our Jewish brothers and sisters would agree, that God is the ground of all being. He is the source of everything. So far from the world being this kind of neutral space, just waiting for someone to come along and define it, we say everything is pregnant with the potential to be fully realized into what God has determined that it is to be. And I think this is so key because what it does for us, and I think the the important contribution of Christians, is to recognize then that people, you and I, we have to be interpreted in the way that God sees us, that we don't define who we are, okay? We realize who God has called us to be. This is why for me, the idea of being the beloved of God is so, so important. Because the core of your identity is not in what you do, it's not in what you have, it's not in how other people perceive you, it's not about the choices that you've made, it's not about the, the, the tags and the identities that you've attached to yourself, it's not about how smart you are, it's not about how good looking you are, it's not about how much you have it together. Your core identity, the, the, the story of God, this is what it says about you, your core identity is in the way that God sees you and the way that God loves you. Your identity is a gift to be received, not something to be decided upon or agreed upon or interpreted. And the beauty of that is, even when you disagree, that's still your identity. Because if we're honest, you and I, we we disagree with the way that God sees us all the time. We think it's too good to be true, or it feels too ill-defined, or we want to have our freedoms to do it the way that we want. And we become that prodigal son. We become the, the bitter son who stayed at home the whole time but has never been in relationship with the father. I think we have to let go of this American illusion of self-determination that we get to define who we are and other people don't. And for me, you know, especially over the past probably five years, this is why the Psalms have been so, so important to me to sit and to meditate on the Psalms a couple times a week. The Psalms aren't there just to give us theology, just to tell us facts about God. The Psalms are there to speak to our, the, the core of us, to speak to our heart in what it means to be a human wrestling with intimacy with God, trying to find our identity as his beloved in his presence. It's about being in relationship with him. And we find in the Psalms that it's about one part is worship, which is immersing ourselves in God's story and who he really is. And the other part is about repentance. When we've missed the mark, when we thought we get to decide who we are, that we come back home to him and we ask him once again, remind me how you see me. Remind me of, of, of the reality of who I am. Not all of these isms and ologies that I've believed, 
define me, but in the way that you see me. And teachers remind us that everything we believe and do is theology. We're making claims about God, whether we realize it or not. If you are a Christian, if you believe in the God that is revealed in Jesus, then everything that you say and do is a theological statement. Because if we believe God is the ground of our being, he is the source of everything, then everything else is an echo or um, a ripple effect of the truth of who he is at the core, that God is love. Now, theology, what does that mean? Maybe some of you are like, well, I'm not really into theology. You're probably not into um, a bunch of stodgy academics that use really difficult words and are constantly like mixing Hebrew and German for some reason in order to try to like explain the depths of what Paul meant in this one particular passage. Um, but at its core, the word theology breaks into theo logos, which literally means words about God. So what do we, how do we speak about God? That's theology. And I think this is so important to recognize that everything that you do as a Christian comes out of a theological position, whether you realize it or not. And this is what's so powerful, that subconsciously, the way you treat other people is a reflection of what you believe about God, whether you realize it or not. Or at least it's a conflict between the social imaginary that you've gotten from your surrounding culture and the social imaginary you have from being immersed in the story of God. Work then, the theological work for all of us, not just academics, not just pastors, not just professional Christians, but for all Christians, is to ground everything that we think, feel, and do in the reality of what we are saying about God when we think a certain way, when we feel a certain way, and when we act a certain way. You know, there's been so much especially recently, like, and then my goodness, what the, you know, like perfect storm we're in right now. I remember reading, um, Beth Moore said, this is, you know, what's happening right now in our country is a reckoning. This is a reckoning for the church. And, and I was meditating on it earlier today that my word for the year was apocalypse. And again, everybody, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like this is my fault, but that word apocalypse, not meaning destruction, means the unveiling or the revealing. And I think, you know, regardless of how you vote, recognizing that we have been in the most de divisive political climate that we have been in for a lifetime, that we're going through one of the, like, you know, the, the most strangest pandemics and the resulting quarantine that any of us have ever experienced. And then with all the, relation, the racial tensions on top of that, like all of these things are being apocalypsed. All of these things are being revealed and unveiled about our hearts and our core beliefs. And so much of that is being played out in social media and around um, dinner tables across the country right now. And we're finding ourselves debating all of these things and, 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 and fighting against ideologies and checking the, the frames through which we're looking at the world. And, 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 and like you, I, I'm tired of it. I mean, how many of you, you're just, you're exhausted because you're just trying to hold it together in the midst of a pandemic and all of the illusions that we've had of a post-racial America and trying to love people well and you're constantly bumping up against either other people's social imaginaries or maybe even your own and recognizing like, I have some work to do. But I think one of the things that's so important to me is we're trying to figure out what do we believe? What is true? What is justice? Is to believe that the grounding of our beliefs 
has to be, first of all, theological. Which is to say, whatever you believe as a Christian, because you are a Christian before you are anything else. You are a Christian before you are an American. You are a Christian before you're a conservative. You are a Christian before you are a liberal. You are a Christian before you are young. You are a Christian before you are old. You are a Christian before you are white. You are a Christian before you are black. Christianity is the core of your identity because you are a little Christ. So all of your beliefs have to first of all be grounded in theology. And I've gotten to this point where I'm working through things with people in our community and elsewhere. We're trying to figure out what justice looks like and what we believe. And I'm just at this point where I'm like, if, if what you say that you believe, if your opinion is not first of all grounded in theology, I don't really give two flips what you think. Now, if you're not a Christian, we can talk about philosophies and ideologies and isms and all of this. But if you honestly claim to be a Christian, but you cannot give me a theological reason for why you believe what you believe, I'm going to tell you to go home and do your work. And it's not merely about just finding verses to justify your position. Because my goodness, anybody can do that. And you'll find them. They're there. It's about getting to the heart of God. What is he like? What are his desires for humanity? What does it look like for us to thrive in his good world? What are his intentions for us? What is this going to look like when God finished what he started on the cross? But in order to do that, you and I, we have to shed these small social uh, imaginaries that we have been given, that we read scripture and we try to read God through. So here's what I want you to do. Just close your eyes for a moment, wherever you're at. And I'm just going to use a couple words of just like these ongoing debates that are happening within the church and within our country right now. And I want you just to, to listen to your heart. Where do you first jump in order to categorize this concept? Okay? When we talk about racism. If I talk about sexuality or gender. If I talk about abortion, if I talk about immigration, if I talk about the role of government. You see, in all of these concepts, social imaginaries are alive and they're thriving. They're at work in all of these spheres. And indeed, I believe to say that the gospel of Jesus has no opinion about these things, that it's just about your personal salvation, that in and of itself is a bankrupt social imaginary. Because if we believe that God is who he says he is, and that he is doing what he is doing through Jesus, that Jesus is Lord over all, in all, and through all, that means that he is Lord over all of these things, all of these different concepts. And so as a Christian, if your opinions are not rooted in theology, they're not good enough. Salvation means being delivered from lesser social imaginaries. We're at a powerful moment in history where emotivism, and emotivism means I feel, therefore I am. 
Whatever I feel is true about myself is true. Whatever I feel is true about the world, that must be true also. I go on my feelings and my personal experience. That's what emotivism is. We're at this moment in history where emotivism and then the anti-intellectual strand that says, well, we shouldn't over, we, you know, thinking is inherently wrong. It's all about feeling or whatever it is. These two things have collided in the church, emotivism and anti-intellectualism, and they've led us to where we are today. And we've diminished the gift and the role of teachers, or we sacrificed good teachers for lesser teachers who think that good advice is basically the same thing as good news, and we end up in the bankrupt place that we are today in the church. Because too often, we just want to feel a certain way when we come to church. We don't want to be told the truth. That's our primary goal. And so let's just talk about the elephant in the room. And for that matter, let's talk about the donkey in the room. And now, those are two social imaginaries that are the dominant social imaginaries within the American experiment today. And what we have in kind of American conservatism, you know, the, 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 the modern phrases, make America great again, is this idea that we can look back to the way we used to be, and if we can get things to be the way they used to be, then we're in a great place, and that's what it means to be great. But on the other side, in, in progressive Americanism, we have this, this myth of progress, that we have to leave behind the past in order to move forward. We have to shed off all of these restrictions of, of what we used to have and pursue freedom that's all about the new. And it's this myth that progress is inherently better, that what came before was too old and too small and, 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 and archaic, and it's all about innovation and moving forward. These are the two dominant social imaginaries in the world uh, today, in, in, in the United States today. And I, and I say to conservatives, I think, you know, you want to look back. Oh, I don't think you actually look back far enough to believe that there's history before 1776. And to progressives say, you want to just keep looking forward. Well, you, you cannot ignore the history of mankind up to this point. And what I find so sad in this moment for the American church because of emotivism, because of this anti-intellectualism, because we have shunned good teaching, is that Christians, followers of Jesus, are being duped into these reductive social imaginaries of liberal and conservative, of Democrat and Republican. And we've actually put that social imaginary, those become the frames through which we read scripture, through which we approach God, through which we form opinions about the world and not first allowing ourselves to be washed over by the story of God. And I think this is because we have not valued the gift of teaching in the church. And guess what? If you're cheering me on for what I'm saying right now, and I'm sure maybe the chat is filling up with people saying amen and all this stuff. If you're cheering me on because you're hearing what I'm saying right now about this left-right conservative-progressive divide, and you're thinking of them and how they really need to hear this, that's the indicator that this is about you, okay? As soon as you hear something political and you automatically make it about the people on the other side, you know what your social imaginary is. I'm not saying this to bolster up one over the other. I'm saying a shame on both our houses because we've believed these small things and replaced the core of the actual gospel message with the gospel of the elephant and the gospel of the donkey. But you and I do not serve an elephant or a donkey. We serve the lamb who was slain. 
and he is Lord over all and everything must submit to him. If you can't critique your leaders of your party because of what that might do to you, your social imaginary is more about that party political system than it is about the lamb who was slain. What does justice mean? An important question that we're asking ourselves today. What does justice really look like? Because what we're really wanting to say is, what is God's desire for humanity? And when we understand that, then we can form an opinion on what justice really is. Because if we're honest, most of what America considers justice is not justice at all. It's retribution. It's maybe revenge. It's maybe working very hard to maintain status quos that work for certain socioeconomic or racial or political classes of people, but it, it's not justice. I think we need to understand what justice is because of the story of God, and then we can kind of intelligently partner with other people in the world to pursue justice when we see the justice of God on display in, heaven forbid, non-Christian spaces that we can enter in and freely partner with that and support those things and work alongside of other people for justice. But you and I, we have a dramatically different reason for why we pursue justice. Because for you and I, it's worship. It's our connection to God. It's because we have a revelation of the heart of God in Jesus. And everywhere we go, we see him calling out to us to be part of his work of justice in the world. So we need good teachers to bring us back time and again to the one true story of God so we can be delivered from the lesser stories. Because it's the teachers among us that say to us from scripture, this is who you are in God's eyes. Do not be deceived. Do not be afraid. Let go of all the lesser stories. Let go of all the small social imaginaries of the surrounding culture. Do not confuse those things for the good news of Jesus, but come back to him in the one true story where he speaks over you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I hope we're preaching. <laughs> we have to get this right. We have to get it right. Because we're missing it. And the world is watching and it's waiting. And if we do not allow ourselves to be saved from our own cultures, we cannot be the hands and feet of Christ in the world the way it is today. And so I wanted to finish off by kind of a, a few practical things, just for you to know if maybe you have the gift of teaching. Number one, are you really passionate about the story of God? Are you really passionate about scripture? You just can't wait to dive in and, and pick it apart and figure out what's going and make all the connections and the correlations. That might be an indicator that you have a gift of teaching. Um, maybe you're someone who just loves learning and, and you really love connecting dots. You love analogies, you love stories, you love cross-references, you like, lo love looking for the theory of everything that kind of ties it all together. That's a good indicator of uh, a gift of teaching. If you always take particular things and feel the need to put them in part of the bigger picture, 
because you believe that the gospel touches and blesses every aspect of life. That could be an indicator that you have a gift of teaching. If you tend to be very past-oriented, um, if sometimes you find yourself, like me, getting a little bit too philosophical um, and not necessarily thinking about the practicalities of how to live these things out, that's an indicator that you might be a teacher. Um, and I think that's one thing that's really important for you teachers to recognize. Um, it's about intimacy with God. It's not about just having knowledge. Like we come to the scriptures for a revelation of Jesus, not to dig in and understand what was the relationship between Elijah and Elisha. Like that stuff helps, but that's not Christianity. We're coming to have a revelation of the heart of God revealed in Jesus. Um, if you tend to be very verbal and verbose like me, um, a lot of you tease me that you learn one new word uh, in every uh, sermon that I preach, and I would say to that, indubitably. Um, but one of the things I say to teachers is that you need to be a good student first. In the same way that when, you know, whenever we uh, step into our spiritual gifts, we never leave behind the fact that we're disciples and we're always learning and receiving from God. In the same way, good teachers never stop learning. They never leave behind that place of being a good student, always willing to learn and grow and explore and, and change our minds if it's in the, the, the sake of being more and more faithful day by day to God. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to enter back into worship. But I would love, just in that chat, if you want to just kind of raise your hand digitally if you're a teacher, and I want to um, pray and bless you as we're moving on. And, and especially if you think you have a gift of teaching, like, reach out to me. I want to, I want to help you grow in that to be the best teacher that you can be. Um, so let's pray. Father, I thank you so much um, for the gift of teaching for how uh, that gift, when rightly applied, grounds us in your reality, uh, immerses us in your story, the story that saves the world, um, that good teachers help us to uh, open up our lives so that we can be interpreted uh, the way that you see us and so we can be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Scriptures, that in them, as we look through them, we actually find life on the other side, the life that is offered to us by Jesus. God, I pray for the teachers in our community that we would love more and more day by day your scriptures, not just because of the knowledge that it gives us, but because of the revelation, because of the, the intimacy afforded to us by prayerfully reading your story. Would you raise up strong teachers in this generation to call us home, to, to call us to repent, that we would shed these small-minded social imaginaries in our modern political climate, and that we would stand boldly first and foremost as Christians in a world that def desperately needs to know this story. So bless us, God, as we enter back into worship. Bless us as we go on from this moment in this space. We pray all of these things through the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.